my poor husband must be trying to figure out why I'm shouting. <laughs> this get me so. This questions just get me so riled up. I just oh. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a returning guest. She was the very first BC cabinet minister, in fact, the very first BC MLA to be on the podcast with a professional background in counseling psychology and family therapy, including being a counseling instructor and program developer at UBC and Vancouver Community College. She's a former city councillor for the city of Coquitlam. She was first elected to the BC legislature in 2013 as the BC NDP member of the Legislative Assembly for Coquitlam Millardville. You also know her, of course, as the BC Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Last year, in episode 41, she was on the podcast to discuss the scope of homelessness in British Columbia, obviously pre-COVID, and the government's temporary modular housing program. It's a bit dated because of the pandemic, but the basics still hold up. It's still worth a listen after you listen to this. So check out that episode, episode 41, if you are interested. She's here, but via the magic of Zoom this time, Ryan Reynolds owes her an apology. (laughs) She is the Honorable Minister, Selena Robinson. Selena, how are you? I'm good. I'm really excited uh, that we're here in, a, in an election and uh, going to the polls and asking British Columbians uh, who they want to lead them through this next phase of the pandemic. It is an exciting time. I'm not particularly keen on voting during a pandemic, but as someone who follows politics, I am excited. I'll have to admit. Yeah, and and, and let's remember, Mo, that voting is, um, you know, it's a it's a it's part of democracy, but it's mm-hmm. also a really safe thing to do. We've we've um, we've certainly you know talked with Bonnie Henry. She said like when working with Elections BC about making sure that it's safe and mail-in ballots. I mean, how much safer can you get? with a mail-in ballot. So there's certainly um, lots of opportunity for people to, to vote. Certainly there's like a whole voting number of weeks where you get to, if, if you want to go to a ballot box and we sure. can do it safely. The other thing I think is also important to note that there are local elections that are scheduled to happen. Uh, certainly right now, I think there's one coming up, I want to say on Saturday, I'd have to double check uh, mm. because there's been a, a hold on even holding local elections, by elections. And, um, right. and, and we got the go ahead to do that several, I think, months ago, actually. Well, we'll get into the election in just a little bit. I am carrying a message for you. My dad, Mo Sr., sends you and your family his sincerest shalom. Oh, your dad is so sweet. We've become Facebook friends. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) He is the loveliest man, Mo. He is such a nice man. And so thank, thank him for me very much. Well, he is listening and he will appreciate that. And this is not a joke. My dad is a big fan of yours. Anytime a clip of yours from question period surfaces online or in the media, he's very quick to tell me how you shut down the opposition and how they should just not even try when it comes to your file. Well, well, well thank you. <laughs> Again, thank you very much for me. And I want to point out the Ryan Reynolds bit that you said that he owes me apology. It's actually my son who asked for an apology. Okay. <laughs> <He> was, <laughs> 
<laughs> he was the one that did sort of, you know, went off and said, wait a minute, don't talk about my mother. She's Mrs. <laughs> Robinson. She would never do that. And anyway, it got picked up and it was so cute. It was just really sweet. Well, thank you for setting the record straight before we create another election controversy. <laughs> so I appreciate that. <laughs> Selena, more seriously, yeah. I've covered this topic with Christy Clark, with Richard Zeusman, and I've talked about it myself on the radio. Lori Thronis, in defiance of his own leader, BC Liberal MLA for Chilliwack, Kent, Lori Thronis defended the practice of conversion therapy, something that even former BC Premier Christy Clark on this podcast described as homophobic. Thronis remains in the BC Liberal caucus, which still baffles me because if we all agree that someone has homophobic views, I would assume it wouldn't make sense to have that person as one of the faces of your team. This is something that, from my vantage point, you've taken very personally. How do you feel about Lori Thronis being in the BC Liberal caucus? Well, I think um, it certainly sends a message to BC voters that the BC Liberals are fine to have his views represented. Um, as a, as a, as a, a mother of a gay man, uh, as a human being, I find it offensive uh, that he's homophobic, uh, that he's transphobic. Um, and, uh, and that's really, I continue to be disappointed that the BC Liberals certainly, um, you know, um, give him voice, but also let's remember what he's saying is he supports conversion therapy. That is a discredited and abusive practice that hurts people. Mm -hmm. That is horrifying that they would be okay with that perspective and say, I'm sorry, there's no room for you in this party. And they have mm -hmm. not done that. We have called for them. To, um, to address that, and they haven't. So when you hear Andrew Wilkinson as the leader um, say that there's no room for homophobia, there's no room for transphobia, there's no room for discrimination within their party, yet they make room for Lori Throness, that's a, 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 a contradiction that I can't even wrap my head around. Have you been able to directly speak to Lori about this? Uh, no, I haven't, um, but he knows my position. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the proud mom of a gay man, and what he says is that my son is wrong or broken or damaged, I think is horrifying. Uh, it's, it's, it's insulting to all of us. Uh, and, uh, and I think he knows that, and I think he knows where we stand. And I think Lori knows where we stand as a party and where we stand as British Columbians, because I do not believe that that represents the voice of British Columbians. And again, Andrew Wilkinson continues to make space for him in his party. The fact that he's running again um, uh, in this election tells me that they are actively making space and making mm -hmm. sure that he continues to run. And I think that disrespects all of us. I think it disrespects the human, right, human rights that we have here in this country. Um, and I think it's a real problem for the BC Liberals. What would you say to him? Let's say hypothetically, if Lori Thronis comes up to you and says, hey, I heard you on This Is Van Color, and I'm entitled to my religious and personal beliefs, and if the people of Chilliwack, Kent, don't like it, they don't have to vote for me. What I would say to him is that what he is espousing is harmful to people, and that he knows better, and the data is clear. And he might um, have a, a religious faith and a re religious belief, and that's fine. But as soon as you become uh, a spokesperson for people, where we have laws in this land, where we have beliefs um, across the board around human rights, but you single out a group of people 
as somehow wrong or broken. You do not get to use the voice that you have as an MLA to promote that. And I think mm. that's a problem. We are going to talk about your work, of course, in government, but we have to address the early election a little more. One argument against this snap election was made by BC Green leader Sonia Firstenau on this podcast. Selena, I've known you to champion underrepresented voices, but does this snap election hurt candidate diversity in terms of rushed candidate searches that favor, quote, white men of a certain age, as per Sonia Firstenau, who points to the whole Nathan Cullen situation as an example? So I think, first of all, you need to understand, uh, and, and your listeners need to understand, we have the most uh, a, a gender balanced cabinet ever. Like it's the first ever. Um, and our caucus as well. We have worked hard as a party to make sure that diversity voices sat around the decision-making table. And I'm very proud of the fact that John Horgan has been paying such close attention to make sure that that's happened. Um, and this election, we will be, we are running the most diverse slate of any party. And if you just take a look at some of the candidates that have stepped forward, there are uh, women in leadership roles that are, that are coming out of the woodwork. And I'm very proud to, to see all those fresh faces coming forward. Um, and again, we are, it is a snap election, given the context of the time that we are in. And so really it's about balancing all of that to make the best decision for British Columbians. It's always about British Columbians. And so mm -hmm. again, if you take a look at who's running and the names that are coming forward day by day, you're going to see more women running in a more diverse parts of the province than ever before. And people of color as well. Uh, we have Tony Boot, uh, mayor of Summerland, a black woman uh, who is running for us. We have uh, Josie Osborne, uh, mayor of Tofino, who is running for us. Um, there's so many others that are coming forward um, in, within the SNAP uh, context uh, as well. And so again, when you take a look at the whole slate, we're doing incredibly well in terms of diversity, particularly for women. And that's fair, but I just wonder, did the BCNDP almost paint themselves into the corner with their equity mandate because as soon as there's one exception because of whatever reasons people are going to hammer at that and say well this doesn't meet your own equity mandate um the the equity mandate was certainly put in place a number of years ago that we have worked really hard to get um, i will confess i benefited from the equity mandate as well diane thorne retired they needed to have a woman um it's a it's, i will share with you mo it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because there were some grumbly people um when i brought, put my name forward in 2013 um who said well you know uh she only got it because she's a woman and i was just like fine hmm. then put me up against any man and i will eviscerate him so, <laughs> so um that's the competitive my competitive nature coming out i don't think that's I'm what i love about you them. selena that's amazing <laughs> but i you know i so for me as a woman there is a double-edged sword around it because i believe i'm the best candidate mm -hmm. i'm the best representative of the people here and i uh, uh and while i benefited from this mandate um it, it also can can bite you um, in, mm -hmm. in, in other ways. Um, and I think it's a really important point that we also have the opportunity going forward to talk about it. Because when we have equity, what else do we need to do? Do we have equity mm -hmm. in all spheres? Where are the gaps? Who isn't represented around the table? And so I think it needs to be a living document uh, mm -hmm. and, a, and a living um, commitment that sort of continues to address that. And because we do have, I would argue, like a balanced, a gender balanced caucus and a gender balanced mm -hmm. cabinet. We need to keep monitoring that and keep making it that 
But where else do we need to do some work? Our, our, our work mm -hmm. around equity isn't done, um, and we need to keep coming back to it and revisiting it. And I think there are is going to be opportunity going forward um, to revisit it. But right now, it's what we have, um, and we have the context of a snap election that is, you know, forcing us to move more quickly than we would otherwise. Sure. And at the end of the day. Um, we need to do what we think is best for British Columbians because I look forward to getting back to um, being in government and making decisions on behalf of British Columbians under these very unusual circumstances. Now, you are going to be defending your record not only within Coquitlam Millardville, but also provincially as the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Mm -hmm. Now, there are three core ministries, the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and your file, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing, that are actively working on issues like the opioid poisoning crisis, homelessness, and addiction, which, albeit related, should not be entirely conflated. I want to delineate for myself and the listener your responsibilities because there may be some listeners that go oh you're talking about homelessness uh, ask her about safe supply when they are somewhat related but one doesn't fall under your file for the lay person like myself can you briefly explain how these three ministries work together to tackle those aforementioned issues and crises yeah thank you very much mo for for recognizing that this is a complex um situation it's a complex problem mm -hmm. um homelessness is not about any one thing except you know not having a home but what contributes to not having a home well being poor uh, mm -hmm. What 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 contributes contributes to being poor? Well, having an addiction or having a mental health uh, issues that keeps you from you know participating in the economy. So the interrelationship between all of these component parts fall in you know those three ministries that you've identified, as well as the Ministry of Health. These people are often not very mm -hmm. healthy. And so it's really incumbent on us as government, and this is the work that we've been undertaking since we formed government, is identifying how do we work together and how do we bring to bear the various component parts of our responsibilities to address a complex situation. Um, and so when we formed government in 2017, the first thing that we talked about, and, and I've been on the show, I think it was episode 41 you mentioned, um, talking right. about um, the rapid response to homelessness, getting temporary um, modular housing up and running as well as permanent. And I'm very proud of the fact that we've housed over 3,000 people using mm -hmm. that framework. And it comes with wraparound supports 24-7. However, um, there are additional challenges around, so what kind of um, mental health treatments do they need? once we've got them housed? What kind of addictions, treatments, and supports do they need once we have them housed? So there's more work to be done to make sure that we have the full uh, scope of services um, that can continue to you know, help those that are, that are most, most challenged. But we've made significant strides the um, the uh, last homelessness count that happened just before the pandemic hit um, showed that there's only been a 1% increase in homelessness from 2017 to 2020. The previous homelessness count demonstrated a 30% increase. Hmm. So in, in the region, certainly in the Metro Vancouver region. So what we were seeing was that we were starting to make some strides. And of course, the pandemic had a significant impact where people perhaps had been couch surfing or there might have been double bunking in, a, in an SRO or um, the shelter framework that 
the previous government really kept building up um, was no longer adequate given a COVID context. And so that pushed people out. And so as a result, we are really um, seeing the impacts of not having started this work, I would argue, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing from you is, as I suspected, your ministry, your file is not in its own silo. Like you have to work with these other ministries to tackle this overall societal problem, which I guess we could summarize as vulnerable people or marginalized people, right? Yes, that's exactly it. And and you know what? No government ministry should ever work in silo as far as I'm sure. concerned. Um, it's, I, I will say, you know, given that government, um, you know, bureaucracies are the way they are, it's not always easy, but we were, we were and have been making tremendous progress. So mm-hmm. when we were opening up um, homeless um, uh, uh, modular housing for people that had previously been homeless. We addressed the Wally Strip, right? We, we took mm. care of that. We took care of Oppenheimer. We had Sugar Mountain. These were tent cities. We had Nanaimo Tent City. We addressed every single one of those tent cities. And mm-hmm. we did it because we were working together. And moreover, we were working with local governments because mm. we also need to work you know, right across all orders of government. British Columbians don't care whether it's local or provincial or federal. They just know that they want their communities to be safe. They want Mm -hmm. their neighbors taken care of. They want those who are vulnerable to have the resources they need to be safe and to get better. That is who we are as British Columbians. And so it is incumbent upon us as MLAs and as leaders to find ways to work together to deliver for the people who need it the most. Those are the people who don't have a voice. Uh, and so that is the work that we've been doing. That's, you know, when I think about Wally Strip and I think about what was there, Mo, well, I don't know if you ever got a chance to see it. Um, I was appalled at what I saw on the, mm-hmm. um, literally on the sidewalk uh, on, uh, on the, on, in the Wally area of, of um, Surrey, like five blocks of tents on the sidewalk. Yeah. You know, um, and um, I just thought, and it had been there for years, years and years, and I just thought, we can do better. And the previous mayor, Linda Hepner, and I would text regularly around, I think I can do, I think I can bring some housing uh, resources and some health resources and a nonprofit. Can you help with your, you know, can your bylaws help us, you know, figure out how to move forward? And can we accelerate getting this housing done? And back and forth we would go. And at one point there was a bit of a hiccup. And uh, my folks uh, from BC Housing were saying, well, we think the city is, you know, stalling on this. And her folks were saying, she called me, she says, no, I think it's on your end. And I said, (laughs) I'm going to go and talk to my people. You go talk to your people and let's touch base at the end of the day and fix it. And we did. We just did. And we worked together and really over a a weekend, I'll never never forget this because we were having a caucus meeting and I want to say it was in June and John Horgan uh, was talking and I got a text from the BC housing staff saying, here are some photos of us moving 170 people over two days Mm -hmm. to homes. And I showed him the picture and the two of us were weeping. Like, look what we did. Look what we did. And those people, I think over 95% of them are still housed. They're reporting good, um, better health outcomes. Some of them are getting work. Some of them have gone into treatment. Like, Hmm. it's really made a difference. And I know that uh, we were just getting started, um, and we have so much more to do. And I want to get back at it, Mo. I want to get back at it. And we'll talk about temporary modular housing a little later. 
one of the big initiatives that your ministry undertook this year was the purchase of hotels to provide temporary supportive housing during the coronavirus pandemic. Can you broadly explain this program? Who's being housed? What's the scale in terms of how many hotels, how many people are being housed? And did the hotel housing come with wraparound services for its residents? Yeah, th- thanks for, for that. And I mentioned earlier, um, we had, because of the pandemic, so many people um, were really turfed from the precarious housing that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are people that that may or may not have been counted in a homeless count, but they had precarious housing. So couch right. surfing, for example, would be considered precarious housing, even though they sort of have a roof over their heads for the time being. And of mm-hmm. course, um, you know, we were required to what they call thin the shelters, not have as many people um, in, shel- in existing shelters. And That's people right. who yeah. perhaps, you know, perhaps double, triple bunking in someone's home um, were no longer welcome because the risk of, of not being able to keep distance. Um, and so we, what we saw was a surge, uh, certainly at Oppenheimer Park that had started beforehand, but really became problematic. But we also saw on um, Vancouver Island and Victoria in particular, uh, and Topaz Park as well, um, some real um, uh, numbers were, were climbing. And it's a, it, was a, it was becoming a real problem. There was no um, um, plan to uh, what were we going to do, and we needed to move quickly. So we had this opportunity to purchase um, these hotels, um, we, we purchased, uh, I believe it was four of them, um, um, uh, sorry, three of them, two in Vancouver, one in uh, Victoria. Uh, we got, we managed to get, um, we talked with the health authorities, we, had, we talked with the um, uh, uh, nonprofit providers and said, listen, we need to move quickly. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Under normal circumstances, We um, interview people, we identify how to best support them. We know that people thrive better when there's a group of 40 to 60, somewhere in there, uh, living Mm -hmm. and getting the supports they need. But we are in a pandemic and we have an opportunity to move these folks who are really challenged in the context of a pandemic, especially challenged, and get them into safe quarters where there is um, the dignity of a washroom, uh, where they can uh, be safe, where we can manage a criminal element, because we were certainly seeing a criminal element coming into these these places, mm-hmm. um, where we can have um, 24-7 services available uh, through the nonprofits um, to make sure that people uh, people's health and, and safety is a, certainly a priority. And we can start getting these people healthy, because living outdoors um, for an extended period of time um, is not a healthy healthy way to be and so we sure, moved yeah. between three and four hundred people um into housing now now shane simpson the minister who was the minister for um social development and poverty reduction he technically was sort of spearheading the homelessness file and the encampment stuff but we were coming in as as again cross ministry as support saying mm-hmm. here's you know bc housing this is what we can do this is what we can bring to the table um, and so he sort of coordinated through his ministry that whole process it's a significant amount of work um, and um, and moving quickly is always challenging uh, mm-hmm. because we know that when we can interview people properly, identify their needs, coordinate their individual services that they need and make sure it's all in place for them, that takes time. But we were in a, cri- we were in a crisis. And so uh, we're sort of doing that work while housing people simultaneously. And so it's been rough. It's been rough for a lot of people who haven't been inside for a long time. 
Um, and we, it's been, it was rough all as well when we did this in Nanaimo. And it was um, rough uh, when we did it um, in other places as well. So it, takes, it does take some time to settle out and to determine everyone's needs and making sure that we have the match to the right service. Um, but we're making progress, and that's um, really important. We've acted quickly, um, and we're continuing to, um, to deliver. And we have more to do, Mo. We absolutely have so much more to do. We mm -hmm. were a government uh, and our, I guess our government um, in mid mid stride and making progress. And uh, what I want more than anything is to get back at it. The total number of people you said was around four hundred that yeah, were housed yeah, through this that. program. Yeah, yeah. And this always comes up in the news media. This idea of wraparound services, and the opposition says there are no wraparound services, and you say that there are wraparound services. Well, <laughs> what kind of services were? attached to these hotel purchases. Again, I, I want to say how um, disappointed I am in the BC Liberals because they'll say uh, things like, um, we, you know, uh, we shouldn't stigmatize people. And yet that is exactly what they do. And I can't tell you, Mo, how many times I wanted to scream at them through my little, um, my little video uh, because uh, in this last uh, session, uh, and I felt weird how weird it was for me to scream at them from my office in the legislature. Um, because, and I will say this, Jane Thornthwaite was the worst as far as I'm concerned. She stood there um, in the chamber talking about how she had to witness in broad daylight people eating out, out of dumpsters. Right, yeah. She had to witness. And I thought to myself, this isn't about you. This is about people who don't have enough food. This is mm -hmm. about people who can't get a house. This is about people who, who fell out of the bottom of our economy while you were taking care of the people at the top. You ignored these people, and now we are taking care of them. And all you can say, Ms. Thornthwaite, is that you had to witness people eating out of a, out of, of a, of a dumpster. Well, I think that is disgusting, a reflection on, on her part and on their part, because really that's what they're about. This doesn't mm -hmm. look good. I shouldn't have to witness people being sick. Well, these people are sick because no one took care of them for a very long time. And so yeah. our wraparound services, to get back into your question, are about the frontline workers who work for nonprofits, who are there to make sure people get meals, make sure they take their medications, um, help them with their planning, help them with their uh, making their doctor's appointments, getting into treatment, um, uh, holding their hand while they make decisions about reconnecting with their families, helping them do that, making mm -hmm. sure that they're, that when, when the nurse comes by, that they are available and that they can get, you know, get to the appointment. Those are the kinds of things that people need. Um, and those are the kinds of, of resources that we've brought together with these other ministries to make sure that we can get a handle on. Yeah. Do more, Mo? Of course we do. We're not done. And we've, we've committed to working together with other governments to address this problem. And I want to give a shout out. I can't believe I'm doing this to the feds for their recent announcement. Um, I, I haven't read, read the fine print because technically I'm not the minister right now in that really weird place in an election. Mm -hmm. um, but I am hopeful that um, should we be successful and, and, and get back into power, that we'll continue to work with the federal government to um, make sure that we can continue to, to deliver for these folks who, who need it most. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you read my op-ed on Jane Thornthwaite, and that's actually why I wanted to delineate your responsibilities and the other ministers as well, because I very often see homelessness, mental health, addictions, opioids crisis being conflated. <laughs> so that's, I think it's really important for the public to understand that the issues are complex, uh, these are related issues, but it's not that you can jump from seeing a, a homeless person on the street to having an opinion on safe supply. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I think, and again, I, but I, the, the biggest contradiction I find is, uh, you know, the, the BC Liberals keep saying we, we shouldn't stigmatize, and that is what they do. Mm-hmm. They stigmatize. You know, um, and, and I'm not saying that we ought not to be working with communities because that's the other work that 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 we do when we um, when we bring this resource to a community, when we bring housing to a community, we work with the neighborhood around how can we make sure that this gets integrated into the neighborhood? How do we make sure that these people feel welcome in the neighborhood while they get better? So, Selena, let's let's get into that, because, again, we'll, we'll look at some B.C. liberal criticisms. Andrew Wilkinson said that these hotel purchases are wreaking havoc on the neighborhood, referring to Yaletown specifically. MLA Todd Stone described the purchases in Victoria as a failure at every level. They're saying that vulnerable people are being warehoused and abandoned by the NDP. They're saying that small businesses have been facing negative impacts, such as theft, property damage, and violence. And even setting aside the BC Liberal criticism or rhetoric, we are seeing increasing news stories in Vancouver and Victoria about residents feeling unsafe, some being threatened, property crime, including break-ins on the rise. Allegedly, even former residents of hotels are leaving because they feel unsafe. Can you explain to me what exactly is happening in these areas and what supports are being put in not only to help the vulnerable population, but also to ensure the safety of everyone and how your government has dealt with these issues that are being reported in the news? Yeah, You know, everyone deserves to feel safe, whether you have a home or you don't have a home. I don't care. Uh, regard, like, I, I don't care who you are you have a right to feel safe in your neighborhood. Um, Homeless people have a right to feel safe. Businesses have a right to feel safe. uh, Mm -hmm. And people who live in homes have a right to feel safe. And and, and that's a value that we have uh, as British Columbians. And so uh, part of what we've done around the wraparound services is we do bring in security. We do bring in um, um, additional supports. Having said that, having said that, the pandemic has elevated um, other issues and other challenges. And I, mm-hmm. and I think what it's demonstrated to us is that we still have more work to do. We absolutely still have more work to do. And in fact, uh, just before the, um, just as part of the, the recovery program, we, we announced for local governments a, a, a significant, I think it's $100 million, yeah, it's $100 million um, grant opportunity for us to work together with local governments around um, the public realm and keeping it safe. Because local governments also have a responsibility for the policing end mm-hmm. of, of the equation, um, as well as, uh, you know, enforcing bylaws and all that. So we said to local governments that have also been struggling because of the pandemic, here's some money to help beef up those services, making sure that the public realm is safe for everyone. Whether you mm-hmm. have a home or you have a business or you're homeless, 
everyone deserves to feel safe. And so that is available for local governments so that we can bring in even more resources. Um, and I also know that we announced, um, again, uh, just like last week, uh, we're working as quickly as we can, additional ACT teams to be on the ground in those hotspot areas. And that's okay. about bringing in some additional health services, additional sort of psychiatric health services that uh, work with the street population. Again, that has been forced out. So imagine, imagine Mo, you are a homeless person with significant challenges. You are um, you manage to couch surfing with a friend who then throws you out um, in April or May, and you have nowhere to go, you have no resources, um, and you're stuck, and you know, and you need money, and so you might engage in, in petty crime. You have you have mm -hmm. nobody, um, and you want to you want to you want to just feel safe. You want to be someplace, um, but you don't know where to go. And so, making sure that we have bodies on the ground working with the homeless population uh, while we continue to do the housing um, component uh, to make sure that they're hooked into the system so they don't have to engage in petty crime. So that's the kind of stuff that we've been working on, certainly through the last part of the, when we were in government before the writ was dropped, uh, we, we got those resources out the door and I'm expecting that we'll, we're gonna start to see some changes um, going forward. Understanding that obviously this is a very challenging undertaking and accepting that the government is doing its best, you've clearly outlined a case of all the things that you're doing to, to, to help this vulnerable population and to help that neighborhood. Is Andrew Wilkinson wrong in his assessment when he says that these hotel purchases are wreaking havoc on their neighborhoods? They are... Um and those are his words, to be clear. Sorry, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're, they are um, there to house people and to provide them with supports. We still have more to do, Mo. There are mm -hmm. still, and certainly the, the, when, when I hear, um, and I've talked with the, with the business owners and we've, we've reached out to them. I've asked BC Housing to reach out to them, to engage with them. And we have been doing that to identify solutions, like what possible solutions, because I have to say, even the business owners, they're, they're not saying throw these people back out on the street. Mm -hmm. they're, 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 like, really, I, I, they are not saying that. They don't want that either. Um, but what they want is for the, the energy around the space to calm down. And what we are mm. finding is that there are people who are, we have not yet housed who are um, milling about and they're, the, they're more of a challenge. And so what that tells me, Mo, is that we need to do more on housing. We need to mm -hmm. do more on policing. We need to do more on bylaws. And that's why we brought in these additional resources for local governments to do their part. Well, we continue to do our part. And that's the partnerships that we need to continue to develop and evolve because we all have a role to play and the businesses have a role to play. And they, mm -hmm. and I really, I, I appreciate um, their candor and their frustration that we haven't been able to resolve it yet. And we are making progress and we need them to be at the table with us to continue to problem solve this very challenging um, pandemic um, and this very challenging um, crisis around homelessness that had grown for 15 years. It didn't show up when we formed government, Mo. Um, sure. it, 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 it's, it's been there for a long time. And as a government, I am so proud of the fact that we are tackling it head on. We are not backing away and we know that we need to do more. Is this one of those things again where 
the opposition is saying there are no wraparound services. Well, they're lying. And then you're, and you're trying lying. to... Con- <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. And, and I think it's actually very insulting to those frontline workers, right? These are the frontline workers that we all banged our pots and pans for at 7 o'clock. These are mm-hmm. the people working in shelters and in, and in um, um, housing facilities, um, making sure that people were safe making sure that they didn't OD, making sure that they were keeping distance, making sure that, that, they're, that they were cleaning um, and, and keeping everyone safe. Um, mm-hmm. And to say that, they're not, that what they do doesn't matter, that what they do doesn't count, I think is so disrespectful of those frontline workers. So I call bullshit on the BC Liberals when they think that it's okay to say um, the, these homeless people are, are a terror to our communities. Um, but but you ought not to marginalize further those who are down on their luck, but we're going to do that anyway. Uh, we, we need frontline workers, but we're going to discount their work anyway. Mm. It's like, really? Really? Come on. We are talking about the most vulnerable people in our communities, and you want us, rather than help them? We're talking about, you know, a, a, a situation that has been growing for a decade and a half, and... We finally have, we're finally making progress. Join with us and celebrate and let's find out ways to do more. And instead what you're doing is you're saying they're bad, it's bad for communities to have this kind of housing for people. Well, I have to tell you, Mo, in Chilliwack, in Abbotsford, in Kamloops, in Kelowna, in, in, in Port Alberni, there are communities all over this province that are so grateful to have this housing. And Vernon, oh my goodness, Vernon keeps asking us for more because they mm. see the value it brings, not just to those who are homeless, but to their communities. And that's something I think we all should be proud of as British Columbians. I appreciate your candor. Again, one of the reasons I bring this up is if you're just a regular person trying to make your way through the news and you're hearing one side say this doesn't exist and the other side saying it does exist, I think if it does exist and you truly believe it does and you're doing that work, then you should call call them out for lying if that is the case. Okay, they're <laughs> because, lying. <laughs> no, well, you did. You did. <laughs> and I appreciate that. It's, and I appreciate that straightforwardness just because I think as a consumer of the news or just someone who's trying to become informed, it can be very difficult when both like both sides can't be right. You know what? You know what I mean? it's, it's interesting because Linda Reed, who is retiring at longtime mm-hmm. MLA from Richmond, um, she I think wrote a letter to the editor some time ago because we have one in Richmond, and I want to tell you about this woman that I met in the Richmond temporary modular housing. Yes, they have temporary okay. modular housing in Richmond, and it was very contentious. It was very contentious, um, and Linda Reed, God bless her, said uh, in a letter to the editor that we should all. Not only are the wraparound supports, but we should all wrap around our, hand, our arms around this. Hmm. Right? So she knows what's there. She, and she appreciates it and values it. Right? So she, yeah. she knew what it took to make that happen in Richmond. And in fact, I had the opportunity last year. I think it was last year. Time has sort of disappeared into the abyss <laughs> of COVID. But I'm pretty sure it was last year. Um, I, got, I had a chance to go back and, um, and tour the, the Richmond 
uh, temporary modular program that had been around for well over a year. And I got to meet someone who actually lives it lives there. Because normally when I get a tour, no one's in there yet. We want to be mm-hmm. respectful of, of people. But I, I managed to get a tour. And I met this woman named, also named Linda, or sorry, Joanne named Joanne, who, um, w- who agreed to uh, allow some of us to come and take a look and just see how things were playing out. And I have to tell you, Mo, I, I've seen many of these. I, I've been to a lot of their openings. Mm-hmm. And, and they all look the same because they're, it's a modular construction. But this one looked so different because when I walked in, it was so tidy. There were I remember seeing on the counter – a couple of boxes of cereal and a couple of boxes of crackers on the counter lined up perfectly. There was art on the wall and over her bed, she had stenciled love you to the moon and back. And Joanne is a woman probably close to my age. Um, I would say early fifties maybe, and, and maybe younger, maybe younger partly because I think living on the street ages you. Um, And and I asked her about what it meant for her to have this place to call home. Mm-hmm. And she said, it means that I don't have to worry about where I'm going to eat or where I'm going to sleep. And it means that I can reach out to my kids who are young adults and find out what they need, where they're at, and, and how we can reconnect. And she mm-hmm. said, and I'm able to get my life back. And she yeah. said, before I moved in here, I was living in the stairwell of the Van City on Number Three Road, <laughs> and I just looked at this woman who just looked normal. Just looks like a normal fifty-ish woman who was living a year earlier in a stairwell. Yeah, and and I thought this is why we do what we do. This is it. On our last episode together in June, twenty nineteen. You also made a very compelling case for temporary modular housing, how it's been successful, and how some of the challenges at certain sites were due to rushed decampments. And we talked about Nanaimo and Maple Ridge. How are the sites at Nanaimo and Maple Ridge, both Maple Ridge sites, looking now over a year after we first spoke? Thanks for following up, uh, because they've, they've significantly settled. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, I'm not saying it's easy. It's easy work. Um, there continue to be challenges because we still have so many people who need homes. Um, and, uh, we have more work to do and these are temporary and I look forward to working. We've just signed an MOU with, um, with the mayor of Nanaimo to do a whole bunch of more investment in housing, um, to, oh, wow. to do permanent sites, to do affordable sites. Like we have a whole plan in Nanaimo. It's going to take some time to, realize the plan, but we have an agreement that this is how we're going to work together. Um, I would love to say the same thing with Maple Ridge. There's still some work to do because we need to um, make sure that we have some permanent sites identified. But mm-hmm. I know that the, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, I guess they're now candidates, they're not MLAs right now, um, but both Lisa Bear and um, uh, uh, Oh my God, I've just lost his name. I'm, it's your caucus. I know, right? <laughs> Bob D. sorry, thank you very much. Um, both Lisa Bear and Bob D. sorry, Bob, um, have been in touch. Uh, we've talked about um, doing a youth safe house there. Um, I look forward to continued conversations. They've raised it. Um, the previous government eliminated funding. They have a desperate need for, for a, a youth 
uh, housing. And so we're eager to absolutely move forward with that. Uh, we have some details to work out. So we need to get a whole bunch again in that community, a whole bunch more housing to do uh, there. And I look forward to working with the mayor and council to make that happen. We did it in Nanaimo. I have confidence we could do it in Maple Ridge as well. How many total temporary modular housing projects are now up and running and how many total people are housed? Well, the number of projects I've lost count of, but I can tell you we have over 3,000 that we've housed wow. uh, with all of our investments. And that's just in a couple of years, Mo. Think mm. about what we could do with four more years. Um, that's just in a couple of years. And um, and part of you know our plan, our 30-point plan, is not just about... Um, modular housing and supportive housing for people who are homeless. We know that people with middle incomes and low incomes also need housing. That's mm -hmm. why we're building thousands of units um, uh, right across this province for people with low and moderate incomes and middle incomes as well. So there's absolutely more to do. The other thing is that when we when someone is stabilized in supportive housing, right? So picture this: they've been they've been let's say on the streets or in the parks for a number of years. They get stabilized after, let's say, 18 months in supportive housing. We don't have a time limit on it. We, we want to mm -hmm. support people um, as best we can. But let's say after 18 months, like Joanne, for example, in, in Richmond, she's, she says she's ready to move on. She's ready. She no longer mm -hmm. needs the support component of the housing. So we want to make sure that she can ladder into affordable housing. Right. where she can pay perhaps welfare rates because she's not yet working, but she, she can pay welfare rates, but she no longer needs the support. She can, she remembers how to shop for herself and she can manage a budget and she, you know, can knows to take medications and she can uh, get to her appointments now that she has some stability. Um, and so she needs affordable housing. She doesn't need supportive housing. So mm -hmm. we want to make sure that there's this, the affordable housing for people like Joanne. And let's say she does get a job, but let's say it's a low wage job because she doesn't yet have the skills needed to make uh, a, a better wage. Uh, so again, she can move into other kinds of housing that meet her needs. And so we are uh, right across the board um, between what's um, in the permitting approval stage what's in construction and what's already open 25,000 homes is affordable what, housing of homes. affordable affordable housing on the whole range the whole range um, that mm -hmm. is um, in in that we are active on in files and BC housing has been tremendous in helping us deliver that so has the development community I want to give um, kudos to developers that have worked with us, the nonprofit sector, the community housing sector, the co-op sector, they have been tremendous partners in this, as have local governments. They have been outstanding. 90 communities, Mo. We are working with 90 communities to deliver on all this housing. Huge undertaking. We are not done yet. That's why it's a 10-year plan. And that's why we have to get back into government. Because you know what will happen if we're not? The BC Liberals will cancel every single project that is that is in the pipeline because they did that in 2001. I was horrified when I learned that, Mo. In 2001, the BC Liberals got into government from the from after you know the New Democrats lost. It was mm -hmm. um, um, uh, horrifying for me to learn just how 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 they devastated all any project that did not have their stamp on uh, was eliminated. Um, and we took a different approach as a government. We said, let's take a look at what's in the pipeline. And what we did, we did the exact opposite. 
we said these aren't quite affordable enough. Let's put in more money on the grant end mm. so that we can bring rents down by a couple hundred dollars a month so people can really afford them. So we kept their projects going, but we made them more affordable. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I worry, I worry what, what they would do with all of those thousands of units that are already in the pipeline. So you're going to hate this next question. Go ahead. Ask it anyway. <laughs> but I want to touch on what you're talking about. The BC Liberals claim that while the BC NDP promised to build 114,000 units of affordable housing over the next 10 years, only about 3,000 units of affordable housing has been built. In the wake of the revelation that BC only received $7 million of the federal government's $1.4 billion in funding for affordable housing, MLA Todd Stone said the following, to hear NDP Housing Minister Selena Robinson criticize the federal government for not following through on its housing promises as we watch the homeless crisis worsen in cities throughout the province is especially hypocritical, given the minister has utterly failed to fulfill her own government's promises to British Columbians for the last three years. What you told me is the complete opposite of that. Well, because and this lying. is a recent because statement. Because you know he's not telling you the whole story. He's not telling you the whole story. And that's, what, again, what's disappointing. It's misleading. We have, so are those, those numbers are incorrect? Yeah, absolutely they're incorrect. The only thing that's <laughs> right is that we only received $7 million of the government's $1.4 that the feds promised. That's the only thing that's correct in his statement. We have thousands of units under construction. I think I want to say it's like 9,000 just in, in, under construction. Um, mm -hmm. And we have thousands open. Like just, it, just in our supportive housing bucket, there's 3,000 that we've housed. Mm -hmm. Like just in that one bucket. Yeah. We have, um, the, we have a housing home project that just, that just opened up just last week. Hundreds of units. We have um, our community housing fund, hundreds of units. We have women... Women seeking um, safe places, transition housing. Again, mm -hmm. um, we've opened up a, a couple of them, but we have, again, hundreds of units under construction. Um, and, and what's really, uh, I mean, I can be flippant and obnoxious. I mean, maybe I will be because you have me fired up, Mo. Why do you always get me so fired up? Um, <laughs> it's what I do. Blood pressure. <laughs> here. Um, what I, what, what's frustrating is, you know, building housing, building permanent housing, takes time. It, it can take a couple of years, right? By the time you put out, you know, we have a grant proposal, like we're going to build housing with, with, um, with, lo with local governments, with Indigenous people, with um, um, non-for-profit uh, um, societies. Um, you put out your grant proposal, they, they put their project together, you review the project, uh, you award it, then they have to hire the developer who's actually going to do the construction, like mm -hmm. all of that takes time then you get sure. shovels in the ground and it can take you know 18 months to build the housing we've been in government um a little over three years so we have we take a look at all the housing that we have already built that's open and there's i i, I want to say eight nine thousand i don't have that, those numbers directly in front of me uh, but thousands then we have another uh 10,000, 12,000 under construction. Again, I don't have those numbers in front of me because um, mm. I'm here as a candidate, not as a minister. So, um, but we have thousands and thousands. Um, and then we have a whole bunch in the pipeline getting the permits. So really, it's really so disingenuous to say that. 
And, and when I left, so you said, Selena, sorry, you said twenty five thousand. You threw that number out earlier. So is twenty five thousand units total? Is that built and in the pipeline? Yes, and currently being built, built? and okay. in the pipeline because that's that's because the numbers change right every month. Of course, every month yeah. as a minister, I get well. Now these are not no longer permitted. Now they're the, the permitting has gone through. Now they're under construction. These are mm -hmm. no longer under construction. They're now open. So what I do just to keep my focus is how many are in the pipeline, like getting permits, how many are under construction and how many are open. And that's the total. Because once they're permitted, once they're in the permitting process, there's funding allocated to them. Mm -hmm. So it's from my perspective, it's money that's spent already because it's moving in it. It means it's an approved project and we are moving on it. And it will be a number of years from, their, from getting their permits to when people move in. Because that's mm -hmm. how long it takes to build housing. Like that is sure. how long it yeah. takes. I wish I was, I, I've said, I keep saying this. I wish I was Samantha on Bewitched and I could just wiggle my nose and la-la, housing's there. Um, I, I, I can't do that. I try. God knows I try. Um, but the, so for me, we have 25,000 that we have acted on. Thousands are open, thousands are under construction, and thousands are in the permitting process right now as we speak. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. And I think for what they would do is they would cancel the ones that are in the permitting process because that's what mm. they did last time. They would just shut them down. And I think that's a dangerous thing. I think it's a bad thing for British Columbians. Uh, we need housing. We've been desperate. Um, they mm -hmm. did nothing. And just to give you a, a sense of scope and scale and how quickly we're moving on this mode. So we're at 25,000 now, three and a half years into government. Mm -hmm. They did 23,000 over their 16 years. Wow. So that just gives you a sense of skill because I don't think British Columbians appreciate what, like, what does that number mean? Like, right. that's a lot of housing, but what does it mean? It just gives you a sense of how fast we are moving as a government because we're committed to making sure that people can find a home that they can afford to live in that meets mm -hmm. their needs. And again, we're talking about seniors on fixed income. We're talking about people with mental health uh, uh, and other disability challenges. We're talking about women fleeing violence. We're talking about middle-income British Columbians who are working hard and doing the best they can and still can't afford housing. Mm -hmm. And they can't find housing. And so we're building housing for them too. All of it is in the pipeline. So without telling me to ask Todd Stone, <laughs> why is he throwing out that number? <laughs> he's taken one number from one report that is in a BC housing report on a particular fund. And he's okay. just cherry picked one number from, la I don't know which quarter it was, I don't recall, and saying, but he's not counting all the other places, all the other funds, and all the other ways in which we've provided housing for people. Mm -hmm. So that's the disingenuineness. The other thing is um, that's, that I think um, you know, uh, is, is frustrating um, is that he's not saying that the federal government hasn't lived up to his commitment. Like he, he can be an advocate mm -hmm. and he's not even being an advocate because the federal government has not been at the table. You know, they were over here on the other side of the Rockies. We have a housing crisis and they have not delivered. And I have spoken with the minister. I have challenged when I speak publicly, I talk about the federal government. We need them to come in. And we've always said our 114,000 um, homes that we need as British Columbians needs to be done in partnership. We need the mm -hmm. feds at the table. We need local governments at the table. Um, indigenous housing in this province is appalling. We're the, still the only government. We're the only government building housing on reserve. 
the federal mm-hmm. government isn't there, but people in British Columbia need housing. And if we can make sure that there's housing for people where their homes are, when they're on reserve, for example, they're not going to come to the city to look for housing. It is in our collective best interest to make sure that people have housing where they live and where they call home and where they have their supports. That's what we're about as government is making sure that people can get their needs met where they live. You're a pretty charming person. How come you haven't been able to get the federal government at the table and create those partnerships that you're talking about? Well, I've been somewhat successful around the COVID response and homelessness. I will take a little bit of credit. Um, I, uh, I did lose my mind with the federal minister in a phone call and was able to get a little bit of movement. Um, but you, um, it's, it's been hard. I, I, mm-hmm. I want to do more of that. I, I think I understand um, how to pull them in. Um, but again, I think there's more work to be done. And, you know, when this report came out, I want to thank uh, Jenny Kwan for, for elucidating. I mean, I knew it in my, mm-hmm. I, I could see it because every time we invited them to partner with us, they were MIA. Um, right. But getting those actual numbers really was sort of the, 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 the proof of the puddings in the eating and seeing the numbers is the eating. We can see it. Um, yeah. And so getting those numbers demonstrates, I think, what, what I've certainly known. Um, but we have to go back at them and say, no, this is what we need. And we have to um, get them to recognize that they have a role to play here. And mm-hmm. um, God knows I invited them in every single second and uh, on everything. The announcement that we just made a couple of weeks ago on the 450 more uh, supportive homes in Vancouver, uh, good partnership with the city of Vancouver picked up the phone and said to the federal government, join with us. Let's make it 600. Yeah. And uh, they bought. So again, uh, it's not for lack of trying. Uh, We need to do more. And there's a new finance minister and would love the opportunity to reach out to her to say, join with us. So Mm -hmm. uh, I want the opportunity uh, to, to make that happen, Mo. The last policy issue that I want to touch on is about strata insurance. Mm. As a condo owner, all I know is that my strata insurance is going up by a lot. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to me what is happening, why it's happening, and and why it feels like the BC NDP haven't intervened yet? Well, yeah, thanks. It's it's again, it's another one of those really complex challenges. Um, The effects of the rising cost of strata insurance it's having on owners and renters in strata buildings is absolutely significant. It's urgent and it's challenging because it's being driven by dynamics within the private industry, the private Mm. insurance industry. Um, And because we don't, as government, we don't set these rates, right? This is about the market. And there are insurance providers that are rem- that are leaving the market and they're removing product from the market. And so without the competition, um, there's, there's very little um, motivation to, mm-hmm. to uh, drive uh, a bargain, so to speak. Um, so there's a number, and there's a number of factors that have, that, so that's one factor that's led to, you know, there's, there's less, um, less uh, product in the market, but also with higher real estate prices and building costs, uh, we've also seen uh, an increase in number and severity of weather-related incidents. Uh, so climate change is having real impact on the in- insurance market globally. Right. Um, the, uh, the, I mentioned sort of availability um, and increasing claim rates uh, as well. And, um, and, and frankly, not 
great maintenance for many buildings. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, if you look at the, uh, um, the insurance pool, uh, what the insurance companies are saying is that they, they need to recoup those, um, those mm -hmm. payouts. So we, what we did as government was we tasked the BC Financial Services Authority, who specializes in this. They regulate the insurance industry. We, want, we asked them to look at the, at the issue. We asked them to go and do the research because it is pretty complex. We want to make sure we mm -hmm. understand all the elements. Um, and so they presented with us as government uh, uh, an interim report, uh, and we acted quickly based on some of that information. Um, we, uh, we said we need to stop referral fees between insurers and insurer brokers and property managers. Did you know, Mo, that a property manager could get what in essence is a kickback uh, for getting uh, purchasing insurance? Oh, really? Yeah. No, I yeah, did not yeah, realize yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. So we put a stop to that. You're not allowed to do that anymore yeah. because they're not then motivated to get you the best price. They're supposed to be working for the strata. Exactly. The owners, so we said, yeah. uh-uh, no go. You can't do that anymore. And we also set out clear guidelines for what stratas need to insure. It, it used to be, it was unclear about what made up um, the... Uh, the, the strata, uh, uh, what made up the unit. And so we mm -hmm. put in a more defined. So if you've invested $50,000 to upgrade your unit with new carpet or whatever, um, and it needed to be replaced, um, was it the original or your, your additional investments that they needed to right. replace? So we've yeah. just provided some clarity around that to help, again, bring down the costs. Um, require, we're also requiring strata uh, corporations to inform owners about their insurance coverage or any policy changes, including increasing deductibles, um, so that it's not this last minute stop. You have to mm -hmm. do that research earlier so people can, can plan and shop properly. Um, and as well as for, to allow the strata to dip into a contingency fund to pay for unexpected premium increases so that there's a little bit of a buffer. And we also want to protect unit owners within strata from large lawsuits from the strata. So if there was a flood that came out of your apartment, but it had nothing to do with you, um, mm -hmm. um, that you um, wouldn't get sued. Okay. Uh, so just to protect you. Um, and yeah. we're also requiring brokers to disclose their commissions. So how much are they making as a broker? You want to right. know that as a consumer. And the, the last thing, which I think is really important, is um, the, the previous government put, you know, under their... Um, their regime, I'll say, um, they left it up to strata corporations to determine whether or not to do depreciation reports. And so strata corporations would, would vote regularly, I think, to not do them. Um, and that left um, uh, more risk. And so insurance is based on risk. The other thing is, if you would go to vote on it, whether to do it or not, and you had an investor, and again, I'm going to I'm going to lay this at the feet of the BC Liberals, um, because they were all about getting condos, building you know safety deposit boxes in the sky uh, for their wealthy friends to invest in real estate uh, rather than places for people to live. And so, if you're an investor, and whether or not you should do a depreciation report, you, do you want to spend the money doing that? Well, no, you're not really invested long term, right? This is a you're going to flip mm -hmm. your condo, um, yeah. so, so you, you couldn't get enough of a vote to do a depreciation report. And that is not, was not good for the people who were invested in living there. So we closed that loophole in the way depreciation reports are handled so that you're required to do them because that's just good maintenance, right? You should know exactly, you know, what you need to set money aside for in order to maintain your investment. And so we fixed that loophole. Um, and so that will also um, help the risk of, uh, profile and, and 
more certainty for insurance companies. There's more to do. We're waiting for uh, the, uh, the final report. And again, can't wait to get back at it and, uh, and deliver more for British Columbians. Selena, as I mentioned at the start of the show, most senior loves it when he sees a clip of you in question period. He thinks you are an absolute killer. Even in quasi-virtual question periods, I still see that you are a target for jeering and heckling, often being drowned out. Tamara Taggart, in fact, who you know, on this podcast, she told me a story of Andrew Wilkinson clucking at you. And I looked this up and apparently, yeah, it happened. Is this just the theatrics of parliamentarianism or does it go too far sometimes? Because I've told Jazz Joe Hall and Andrew Wilkinson and David Eby that if British Columbians actually saw some of these exchanges, they would be pretty shocked. And I think that the image of shouting down a person who is just trying to speak is frankly childish and doesn't particularly make for productive debate, although I understand that there's a tradition of theatrics behind it. Do you personally feel targeted? Because I've never been clucked at myself, but if I was, I probably feel like I was being targeted. Um, so I do think it goes too far. Um, I, I, I do appreciate the theatrics. I will say that the first time I saw question period, I too was, was horrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when the new Democrats, you know, were certainly on the, uh, on the um, opposition side, side, opposition benches. Uh, This is before I even ran. Um, And I do think we can do it better. Uh, I think it takes all of us to do it better. Um, I work hard at, you know, I might groan or roll, you know, certainly roll my eyes or say, come on now, that's not true. I may do my own, um, but I don't do name calling. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I think it, I think it does go too far. Uh, do I feel targeted? Um, I do think that the women get targeted differently, hmm. not necessarily more, but differently. Um, I, what do you mean? I think, I think we're berated differently. Uh, it's, it's hard to qualify or quantify. Um, I think our comments, the comments that come at us um, are, a little bit more personal. Um, uh, you mentioned name calling. Have you been called names in the legislature during question period? Uh, I have. I don't, I, and I will say that I don't always pay attention. Like I, you have to drown them out. So when you're on your sure. answering, you have to drown out because you're you're obligated to answer the questions, not for the opposition. I mm-hmm. answer to British Columbians. I want British Columbians mm. to hear what I have to say about what their government is doing. For them on their behalf but I have had colleagues come up to me saying did you hear what someone so said and it's like no well you should stand mm. up and you know um call a point of order and I it's just at some point I just think I have a job to do and I'm not going to yeah. get distracted because somebody on the opposition benches is frustrated that they're not on the government benches mm-hmm. um I'm working for British Columbians not for the opposition so I that's the frame that I take um, but, um, sometimes it does go too far. And you feel that women are unfairly targeted. Yeah. I just, I just feel like we get just a little, it's a little bit edgier. Um, and you know, it's hard. I can't quite put my finger on it because frankly, I, I haven't studied question period enough. Um, I would sure. for somebody to do that. Um, but I, 
I really just focus on getting the job done and try not to let them distract me uh, mm -hmm. because uh, we have so much work still to do, Mo. There's still so much more work to do. And I want to just get back at it. To me, that's the most important thing. And it has been an incredible privilege to do what I've been doing for the last three and a half years, to try to make things better for people, to stay focused on what their needs are um, on average British Columbians, not the, not the wealthy, not, you know, the people who have money to invest or, um, uh, you know, are eager to, you know, make more money. Um, I, 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 I'm committed to making sure that everyone has sort of what they need in order to get ahead in life, to take care of their mm -hmm. family, to create a future for themselves. That to me is what governments should be doing. And that's what we have been doing for three and a half years. And I would be honored to do it uh, for another four years. Setting politics aside just for a second, yeah. I recently learned that 20 years ago or so, you were a surrogate mother. Yeah. And I think that's an amazing thing to do, like just an incredible gift to share with someone. I covered fertility science and policy in general in an episode with Dr. Caitlin Dunn last year, episode 32. With people having children later in life, LGBTQ couples, I think this will become an increasingly important issue for folks. Right now, obviously, there are so many pressing issues, but has the BC government looked at making fertility treatments, egg freezing, and surrogacy more accessible in the future? Well, well <laughs> interesting question. Um, I will tell, well, I don't know. It's just a short answer because <laughs> I've been focused on, on so many other Fair. Uh, yeah. areas of my file. Um, but I will tell you that when back when I um, had my girlfriend's baby for her and her husband, um, we couldn't do it here in British Columbia. We had to go to Alberta. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. uh, an, an, an interesting story, we actually changed uh, policy here in British Columbia because back uh, in 2001, um, I, when I gave birth to him, I had to put my name on the birth certificate with the dad's name, even though hmm. genetically... I had no relationship with this baby. It was right. mom's egg. I was just the oven, so to speak. I was just the, the, <laughs> the gestational carrier. I was a gestational surrogate. So it was their sperm and egg and my womb. And mm. um, we, you know, the, the, the parents were saying, and I was saying, I don't need to be on the birth certificate. I'm not his mom. I'm being really clear, not his mom. And so we took um, the uh, government to court. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Back wow. in 2001 um, and, and said that it was um, discriminatory that a man, um, uh, paternity was determined by uh, genetics, mm -hmm. by DNA, but maternity was not being determined by genetics, only by whoever expulsed the fetus. Like, uh, sure. like expulsed, yeah. It was like funny language, legal language. Yeah. Because I gave birth to him, I was automatically the mother. But if you did a DNA test, I was clearly not his mother. Right. And we won. Wow. And so little did I know that I would ever be a politician, Mo. I had no idea back in 2001. I was just doing something for my friend because it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, at the time, did know that my son was gay. I don't know that he knew if he knew he was gay. He was 10 years old at the time or 11. And uh, he recognizes that if he's going to have a family, 
um, that surrogacy would be a route for him. So little did mm -hmm. I know when I was a surrogate that my, my own son would be hopefully one day maybe looking for a surrogate so he can have, he and his partner can have a family. So mm -hmm. it goes full circle, Mo. Yeah. Cool. No, I love that. Yeah. As we wrap up here, Selena, give me your elevator pitch. I'm looking at the opioids crisis, homelessness, the uncertainty of what's going to happen with the economy. And of course, I'm very worried about public health. And now I have to cast my vote in the middle of a pandemic. We've obviously talked about that. But why do I want Selena Robinson back in the BC legislature governing with the BC NDP? Because British Columbians deserve to have people who care about them and their needs ahead of the needs of those that are wealthy and well-connected. British Columbians have uh, seen what we can do in three and a half years. The strides that we have made on health care, on child care, on education, on the homelessness front. We have ton more work to do. No one is saying that we are even close to being done. We now have a pandemic. And I am very proud of the work that we've done as a government. I'm very proud of the work that Adrian Dix has done uh, to, uh, to keep us all safe. We have, we're still in the pandemic and we're going to be here for some time. And if we're going to mm -hmm. get through this, if we're going to get through this with a steady hand at the wheel, if we're going to get through this uh, and build an economy that works for everyone, because that's really what we need. Uh, the fact that homelessness has been incredibly challenged under the pandemic uh, crisis, we know that we can't leave people behind. And we're a government that I think has demonstrated that we're not prepared to leave anyone behind. So we need mm -hmm. to move forward. We need to move forward in a stable way uh, and, and have a four-year runway to get the work done rather than to be you know, distracted, and I'm going to call it distracted, in question period with name-calling and all that stuff that goes on and get focused uh, as quickly as we can to get back at the work that British Columbians expect of their government. Before we wrap up here, I just have to say this. I know Jen St. Dennis put in a very kind word for me last year to get you on the podcast, but you were the first MLA to come on to the show. And I know last year, originally your team wanted to do 20 minutes or 30 minutes. <laughs> You took a leap of faith. You came on for 75 minutes. I think we're something around that area right yeah. now. You do that, and then suddenly, you know, it opens up these doors. Andrew Wilkinson, twice. David Eby, Bowen Ma, Jazz Johal, Christy Clark, Andrew Weaver, Sonia Furstenau, not to mention Jagmeet Singh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. And honestly, there is a lineup of MLAs and hopeful MLAs that want to do the show. And I really believe that that accelerated when you and I showed the value of this format and the value of the show itself. And that's because you came in, you answered my questions very clearly. You wore your heart on your sleeve. You might remember you got uh, emotional at a certain point during that last podcast, yeah. speaking of your work. And I love that. Like, that's what this whole thing is about. And people might say this is partisan or whatever. I am fair to every guest. And it's of my nature to recognize when I am gifted an opportunity. And I think that's exactly what you gave me. That first time, we got a lot of people talking. It opened up a lot of doors for me. And just on that note, I am very appreciative of you as a person. So people are free to disagree with your politics, not support you, whatever. But they should know the caliber and the character of a human being that you are, because I know that firsthand. So for the second time... Thank you so much for sharing your time with me, Selena. Well, well, thank you, Mo, and congratulations uh, with your work on CKNW. And I, I want to say, you did such a good job with Bruce Alexander. That's what 
turned me on to, to Van Color. And I listened to how you ask questions. And um, you also created a platform for me to talk about the work that I'm doing in a, in a real way. And I want British Columbians to hear about all the work that we're doing. So the fact that you are now sought after is more about you than it is about me. This is about your hard work, your fairness, um, and your willingness to, to ask the tough questions. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Best of luck on the campaign trail. And can you please put in a word for me to John Horgan? Absolutely. He's, he, <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know what? I will do that for you, Mo. And for your dad, I will absolutely, I will absolutely do that because uh, you are, you are a good interviewer and, uh, and I look forward to doing it again uh, when we're back in government and I can uh, tell you uh, what next we're going to be doing because I think British Columbians listen to you um, and I think they like what you have to say and they like the way you ask questions. So I'm sure we'll do this again soon, Mo. I love that. Thank you so much, Selena. Thanks again, Mo. Take care. People. She's the incumbent BCMLA for Coquitlam-Millardville, running for re-election, the BC Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. She is still owed that apology from Ryan Reynolds. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. I think it actually might be her son that is owed that apology. She is Selena Robinson, and I am Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>